for the next several weeks, we're going to have a series of messages on some of the most popular verses of the Bible. I, I, I thought really hard this week, and I dug really deep in what I would call this, and I just call it simply the favorites. And that really just like earth shattering the favorites. Because, you know, it seems to be that, oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It, it seems to be if you read the Bible regularly, if you meditate upon the word, there always seems to be at some point to emerge a favorite. Sometimes just simply a favorite verse. Sometimes a favorite passage within the Bible. Sometimes a favorite book of the Bible. And sometimes just a favorite story. But if you read it regularly, you seem to have sometimes a particular favorite. And for me, my favorite being 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, I received quite so many years ago. I was leading a teen Bible study in Mount Pleasant, Texas, and we were studying the book of 1 Peter. And when I got to chapter 3, verse 15 kind of leaped off the page, and it kind of instantly became my favorite as we're having a Bible study with our students. The verse actually says, the meat of the verse to me, says, always be prepared to give an answer. To everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that you have. Today we talk about hope because this verse points us towards the hope that we have. And the hope we have is simply in Jesus. So let us stand together this morning and read the text that surrounds chapter 3 verse 15, my favorite. We're going to read verses 13 through 17. So Peter's writing and he says this as he's encouraging these believers. He says, now who is there to harm you? if you're zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Father, Lord, we come again into your presence this morning, Lord, just asking that you lead and guide and direct us. I pray, Lord, as I do each week, that the word to be expressed here today would not be the word that I want to say, but the words that you want to be expressed, that you want us to hear today, Lord. The words that you want us to receive to enter into our hearts, to apply to our lives. So with that, Lord, we just pray the Holy Spirit will lead and guide and direct us. In fact, Lord, I pray the Spirit will fill the sanctuary, fill the hallway, all the way into the children's rooms. We're also having a word given to them today. Let's receive the message, Lord, you have for us today. Be thankful to receive it, for it is rich. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we dive now into what is really the midsection of Peter's first epistle, it is helpful to know, before we go any further with understanding of application, to know the setting in which he is writing. So allow me briefly explain the setting for Peter as he writes these words. The time frame is approximately A.D. 62 to A.D. 64. So it's roughly 30 years since the passing of our Lord. The apostles have obediently followed the command given to them in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, to go. It's written to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So now they are going about doing it. But also further than that is that Pentecost has occurred for disciples, which means the Holy Spirit has descended and empowered the apostles to be 
brave and bold and courageous. They go about now spreading the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And they do so, as recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, throughout Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. So as a result of their obedience, Christianity is growing rapidly and tremendously. But there is a problem. Now, it seems that not everyone is ecstatic with this tremendous growth of Christianity. And there are people, particularly Roman citizens, that are very unhappy with the Christians. The question really becomes then, I mean, why are the Roman people unhappy with Christianity and with Christians in general? And the answer is because of the shift of blame by the Roman emperor that's placed upon now the Christians. The Roman emperor is Nero. Now, in case you've never heard of Nero, allow me to elaborate a little bit about who Nero is. Because Nero ascended to power in AD 54 at the ripe old age of 16. Now, he continued to be the fifth emperor of Rome until his dominion ended of his suicide in AD 68. But the thing that most people know, if you're a Christian and studied the word a little bit and heard his name before in church history, one thing you know about Nero that just brings Christians to just shudder and fear is that he is known to be one of the greatest, most severe persecutors of Christians throughout church history. I mean, he looked upon professing Christians, sought them out intentionally to torture them and to persecute them. I mean, Nero was notorious for his cruelty. In history, his name has become synonymous with evil. Historical records from that particular date and time have revealed that he has been accused of, listen, killing his stepbrother. Not only his stepbrother, but his wife. And not only his wife, but his mother. And many, many Christians, I mean, people just not mess with Nero. If you did, you received some sort of death sentence. But let me go back to why then Roman people then are unhappy with Christianity and Christians in general. Because it seems that Nero, with all these different things we have heard and now learned about Nero, it seems he also was accused and at least responsible for the great fire of Rome. The historians suggested his intentions were not noble, and really kind of selfish, and that he had caught the, uh, the city on fire, had it instigated the city to become on fire, because he wanted to rebuild Rome in his own way. So because he had this uh, desire to rebuild Rome the way he wanted to, he instigated a fire that, grew, that burned a great portion of the city. But after it happened, the Roman people, the citizens, become belligerent. They become extremely angry warning the people or persons responsible to pay the price and maybe to be killed. So the Nero, with his plan backfired, blames the fire on the Christians. They didn't set the fire, he did. But he transfers the blame to the Christians. And then immediately, Christians become the enemy of Roman citizens. And the Nero, who's the emperor, right? I mean, he's trying to save face. So he shifts the blame to the Christians and then seeks out all the professing Christians and begins a massive campaign of torture and persecution. Things like beheading or lighting them on fire while even being alive or placing them in the arena with these ferocious, food-deprived animals 
that would just come after them. So yeah, fear is quite rapidly spreading now among these Christians. And so much so they were, were, were thriving. But in Rome now, with this threat constantly from Nero of the persecution, they begin to disperse or scatter. And so Peter then writes to these scattered Christians. You can find in First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us they have dispersed to Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. So Peter is writing then this epistle, this letter, knowing firsthand what it's like to suffer persecution. So he writes to these scattered, dispersed believers mostly to encourage them, for them to remain steadfast in their faith. We can't have the time to backtrack a lot of what's written in the early portion of 1 Peter. We jumped to chapter 3 to give us a little flavor of how he's trying to encourage them to remain faithful. We look at verses 6 and 7 of the first chapter when he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials. I mean, that's an understatement. They've been severely tested in going through a trial. He says, So that your tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, to say the least, it is an extremely tested time for Christianity and for Christians in general. And if any of us ever thought that we have a difficult today, if any kind of persecution or ridicule that we ever received, we need to remember the type of persecution these early Christians were going through in this time of history. Because any persecution, any ridicule we've ever received is very mild in comparison to what they're going through. So that's the contextual situation now that Peter is writing to this group of believers. So with understanding, let's return now to the beginning of the text that we read. In chapter 3, verse 13, note that Peter's word says, Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Verse 14, he adds, Even if you suffer, for righteousness, you'll be blessed. Verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In verse 17, he says, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So Peter continues from chapter 1 throughout where we are now in chapter 3, he continues to try to encourage the believers. He has encouraging words for them to read to help them in their journey. Essentially telling the believers that they are safe in the midst of all they're going through, they are safe in the Father's arms. That no one can harm them. Even if it means they must suffer for simply being a follower of Christ. They must simply suffer. Simply suffer for simply being a follower of Christ. Now think about the situation. Try to place yourself there the best that we can. And we're years and years removed, of course. But try to place ourselves there in the situation of these believers. When Peter's trying to encourage them because of all the persecution they're going through or seeing at first hand with somebody they love. I mean, is it remarkable that he tries to encourage them in the midst of what is happening in their life? Think about what Peter's telling these believers. I mean, they're in the midst of one of the greatest, worst periods of persecution in church history. You or I, would there be no different. That the Christians are likely scared. They're scattering about. They're frightened at the prospect they could be next. 
some of them possibly living without hope. It is likely that they have seen firsthand some of their loved ones, maybe neighbors, people very close to them, have to suffer for simply being a follower of Christ. And they're also a follower of Christ, so they know any day they could possibly be next. As we think about that and try to place ourselves there, I honestly don't think we can ever relate to their situation. But their faith, no doubt, their faith is being tested. And hope is dwindling rapidly. Perhaps they're even trying to contemplate, perhaps even thinking in their heart and mind of denouncing Christ. Now think about it for a moment. I mean, how would you react if you're facing that type of ridicule, persecution, that amount of test of your faith, how would you react? What would you do? In fact, how do you react when faith begins to weaken in your life and hope seems minimal? I hope and pray none of us are ever tested of our faith to this extreme. But Peter, I mean, he knows what it's like. I mean, he's been tested himself. I mean, think about Peter for a moment. Yeah, I mean, Peter, we know. I mean, he failed, right? In the very beginning, when he was tested, he failed. Certainly, he failed because he denied Christ three times. You may remember the account written in Luke 22, finding verse 54. They seized him to beat Jesus, bringing him to the high priest's house. Peter's falling at a distance. It doesn't tell us how close Peter was falling, but Peter, nonetheless, was falling. And as he was following, you find in verse 56 that a servant girl, seeing Peter, said to everybody near, this man was with him also. But Peter, what did he do? He denied it. He said, woman, I do not know him. Well, surely he did. A little later, servant, a little later someone else saw Peter and said, you are also one of them. And Peter said again, man, I am not. This is an interval of an hour later, still another. Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. In verse 60, Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. So Peter has faith. I mean, it's not a severe persecution that Peter is in the midst of them. I mean, it could have been, but he's simply being told that he's one of the followers. And three times upon they find him that he is a follower of Christ, he denied it three times. But that was then, and this is now for Peter. And now Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's no longer denies Christ, but he actually now is a defender of Christ. Yeah, in his life now, since Christ died, he has continued to remain steadfast in this faith. He's begun to preach the gospel, even to the good news of many different people. And because he has been doing so, he has been flogged, he has been beaten. That's written in Acts chapter 4. He's been jailed. For doing so, as written in Acts chapter 12. I mean, Peter knows. I mean, he's grown. He knows now what it's like to proclaim Christ and receive suffering from that. So Peter has suffered and grown as now his own faith has been tested over the years. So now he is writing to encourage other believers in the midst of their situation, in the midst of their persecution. And he informs the believers that they are blessed in verse 14. And he says in verse 15, they need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks him for the reason for the hope that is in you. Do you think they're living with hope? Is it not hard sometimes when life begins to really get 
in our grill, in our face, to remain hopeful? When people begin to test you in your faith or begin to ridicule you because they know what you stand for as a Christian, isn't that hard for your faith to endure and sometimes your hope to remain? These people are simply suffering because of Christ. So let me just point blank ask you the question. If you were living at this particular time of early Christianity, would faith and hope remain? I don't know if we truly know the answer because we're not there. But if we can think about our situation and theirs, would faith and hope remain? And and, and as we process that question for an answer, I think the answer depends on within what you place your faith and hope. I mean, it partly depends on what your hope is and what your faith is placed in. And so the answer really then for all of us we need to recognize is that our hope, that we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, is simply Jesus. It's one name, it's one word. Our hope is simply in Jesus. As I mentioned during the introduction, Verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 3 has been my favorite for a long time. In fact, the midsection of the verse has really become my favorite part. I mean, I learned it years and years ago, as I mentioned earlier, in a Bible study with a bunch of teenagers. And we learned it at a particular time in our study, we was using the NIV. So I learned it and recited it and memorized it in the NIV translation. So the midsection became my favorite because it focuses upon hope, which is what we talk about today. And it tells again to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who ever asked you of the reason, the hope that you have. So we need to be thinking about our hope. We just told us the hope we have is simply one man, one name, Jesus. But hope is written continuously and repetitiously throughout the word. In fact, the word hope is mentioned 174 times in the Bible. 94 different times in the Old Testament, and 80 times in the New Testament. So hope is written everywhere. One definition of hope is that it's the feeling that what is wanted can be had, or that events will turn out for the best. Think about the definition, I'll say it once more. The feeling, hope is, the feeling that what is wanted can be had, or that events will turn out for the best. As you think about that question then, or the definition, let's just think about what our hope is in. What is the reason for your hope? What do you hope for? What is the reason? I mean, we said, we know, as Christians, our hope to be simply in Jesus. But is that real? Is it truly our hope is in Jesus? Or sometimes we be guilty of placing our hope in other things. I mean, I know people who place their hope in the lottery. And money. I have shared with you before, and bear with me now, it might be a little repetitious, the favorite soft drink in the entire world is what? A Diet Mountain Dew, right. I knew. I thought you heard that before. And you can always get a fountain Diet Mountain Dew. It is even to the top of the scale of the Diet Mountain Dew echelon, right? That's right. Now, So I go to Casey's in Princeton on South Main Street. I go in there, they give me a fountain 32-ounce Diet Mountain Dew. I go up to the counter. Usually Jasper's with me, too, because now he's convinced me, Papa, we go on the bus together. 
He's Papa, we're going to Casey's. I'm saying, not today. Next day, we're on the bus together. Papa, we're going to Casey's. I say, not today. Next day, we're on the bus together. Papa, we're going to Casey's. I say, okay, we're going to Casey's. So Jasper and I go into Casey's together. And Jasper gets his little juice box thing over here. And I got to get my fountain drink, Diet Mountain Dew. We go up to the counter, ready to pay for it. Who is in front of me but a man who is buying $100 worth of lottery tickets? I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. $100 of lottery tickets is what he's purchasing. Scratch-off tickets. We know people who put their hope in money, in riches, in the lottery. We should not be placing our hope in such things as the lottery. But sometimes we become guilty of people that we know that do. Sometimes we may even do it ourselves. If not the lottery, sometimes we place our hope in a new or better job, a career change. A lot of people jump ship from one place to the other looking for greener pastures because they hope it is better for them. I was talking to Nora this week. She told me that her husband Bobby has been at Frontier for 43 years. That's amazing. That's old school for sure. Because nowadays, somebody's always hoping they find a better job somewhere else. Sometimes, like perhaps yesterday when we were passing out some dresses to some girls, remember that one girl asked about her wedding dress one day. We hoped that was going to be in the future someday, not soon. But sometimes people are placing their hope in finding Mr. Right. Now, ladies, let me just tell you, I know I stand before you about as perfect as I can get, right? But us men, us men are severely flawed. Okay, you, that may be some earth-shattering news for you. But men have faults and flaws. We're not quite perfect as you may think we are. So you're not going to find Mr. Right. Don't put your hope in finding him. Paige, Grace, look. You're not going to find Mr. Right. I mean, it might be within the church here. You might find some guy, I hope. But he's not going to be Mr. Right. He's not going to be Mr. Perfect. He might be Mr. Right, but he's not going to be Mr. Perfect. We have faults and flaws. You with me? All right. Don't get wedding dressed no soon either, though. Take your time. Sometimes we place our hope in passing the test. Josh just took his exam for becoming a teacher. Quinn did hers a few, well, a few weeks ago. And sometimes if Josh hasn't studied and prepared for the exam, he said, I'm going to place my hope in the fact that I'm going to pass. Well, dude, you better study. Bro, bro, study. Got it. So sometimes we place our hope in sports and championships. March Madness is happening. It's the NCAA basketball tournament. You with me? Who's excited about it? I think I am by myself. But tournament time is happening. Baseball's right around the corner, isn't it, Tom? Tom places his hope in the fact that the Cubs are going to win the series. <laughs> Sometimes we place our hope in sports and championships. So the question is again, what do we place our hope in? The hope we should be placed is only in Jesus. And so the follow-up is do people see you with hope? If so, what do they see you're hoping for? And the answer we need is this then that we should hope for nothing less, nothing other than Jesus Christ. His return, seeing our Lord and the glory of our heavenly home that awaits us. That's what we should be hoping for. 
Because if our hope is in anything other than that, then we've misaligned our true hope. We can live without fistfuls of money by winning the lottery. We can live in the current job we are doing. Just begin to learn to appreciate it. We can learn without Mr. Right or the perfect spouse or perfect kids because they don't exist. We can live without the sports championship. But listen, we cannot live without Christ. Jesus is the reason for the hope that we have. And should be the automatic answer that we have, ready to give when we are asked for the reason of the hope that we have. Just like the meat of this verse asks, the midsection, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that you have. In seminary, when I was in seminary, we had what's called chapel. And chapel is essentially just a daily worship service that begins at 10 o'clock. I mean, it's just like going to church on a Sunday, but it happens every day at 10 o'clock while you're on the campus of whatever seminary I was going to at the time of Southwestern. Same thing probably happens at South, uh, Southern or at Midwestern. Um, just, they have chapel on a seminary campus. But one of the songs that we always had seems like during the time we were in chapel was Cornerstone. And it happened to be we sang Cornerstone today. But the first line of Cornerstone is what we need to focus upon. Because if you didn't hear it, then hear it now. Because we sang it, but we need to realize it has great impact and meaning. Where it says, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's exactly the point of 1 Peter 3.15. That the reason of the hope that we have is Jesus. It's only Jesus. And Peter then is encouraging these believers that they have hope. He essentially tells them if they have Jesus, it is all they need. And the exact same thing applies to all of us. That if you have Jesus, it is all you need. And he is your hope. In the last couple of weeks, we've had messages that's been talking about how life just happens. I mean, at times it gets difficult, it gets in the way, and results in sometimes priorities being messed up, or sometimes life becoming stagnant, we don't grow, complacency sets in, and all those messages were the last couple of weeks. But let's face it, I mean, life does get hard and life does get difficult, as we had focused upon the last couple of weeks. But notice how in a matter of minutes, I mean, things can be just going great. But it just seems so often in a matter of minutes, we can go easily from just being ecstatic and a great warm fuzzy feeling to all of a sudden feeling defeated or crushed or abandoned and overwhelmed, devastated and depressed. Things sometimes happen way too quickly and that great feeling we had, that warm fuzzy feeling can soon very quickly be replaced by one of these other emotions. From these other feelings of abandonment or depression, a crushed spirit. And in those moments when it does happen and the waves come crashing around us, nearly drowning us in that moment of sorrow and sadness and unhappiness, this downcast in spirit when that, when that suddenly happens unexpectedly, when that begins to happen, that is when we need someone to come along 
and remind us, like Peter is doing his believers, to come along and give us words of encouragement and to tell us that we have hope. That the hope we have is found in one man, one name, only Jesus. And that hope that you have in Jesus, no one can ever take away from you. I mean, a lot can happen to us in life. But no one, absolutely no one can destroy or take away your hope in Jesus. So we, if we are here today in the midst of something happening, the message is simply to restore your hope in Jesus. It could very well be that people are watching you. Maybe they are guilty themselves of living without hope. Or maybe they placed their hope in something else we've been talking about earlier. Maybe, maybe they are watching you, seeing the hope you have in Jesus, but they are placing their hope in something more shallow, like the money, the lottery, the new job, whatever. But they're watching you. And what you're doing then by them watching you is becoming a witness. Because when you place your hope in Jesus, it becomes very visible to everyone else. People are watching. And when they're watching you, go through one particular trial and come out still steadfast in your faith and your hope still being in Jesus, you are making a positive witness for Christ because you placed your faith and hope in him. Warren Worsby adds this then, when Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, each crisis becomes an opportunity for witness. We are ready to always give an answer. Every Christian should be able to give a reason, defense of his hope in Christ, especially in hopeless situations. A crisis creates the opportunity for witness when a believer behaves with faith and hope because the unbelievers will then sit up and take notice. Have someone to take notice. Have your hope to be visible in Jesus. Show the world, show the world, the people who are watching you, show them that you place your hope in only Jesus. I recognize, as I look around, there's difficulties all around us. Each of us may be facing some sort of difficulty, some sort of hardship, some sort of trial, maybe in our lives right now. But whatever trial you came here with today, keep your faith. Remain steadfast in your faith and know that your hope is in Jesus. Place your hope in Jesus Christ. Let your hope be restored. Place your faith in Christ. Father, Lord, the message today is quite simple. That we have hope and our hope is in you. But I pray that we would take this message to heart today. A passage, Lord, that we study reminds us to be prepared for the reason of the hope that we have. And today we simply said, as we need to know, our hope is firmly planted in you. So Lord, be with the, every one of us today. As we think about the situations and life unfolding, Lord, we know it can get difficult. I pray for all of us here today, Lord, to recognize that we just do not need to leave here today without recognizing our hope is in you. And because of that, Lord, we can leave here happily, not scared, not frightened. We can be encouraged because you're with us. You are our source of hope. So Lord, today we're thankful for the hope you give to us. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.